This is Ian Hartley. And I'm Warren Kay. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see Him more clearly, love Him more dearly, and follow Him more nearly. You will notice the sound quality on our track today is not uh, what you have come to expect, but I assure you that neither one of us were exposed to a coronavirus in the recording of this podcast, as we were able to both stay in our individual homes and use different technology to bring this to you. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Warren. I'm happy to see you this morning. Yes, Ian. This is the second podcast on guilt and shame. If you didn't watch the previous one, we'll do a very brief overview, um, but it would be helpful if you watch the first podcast on guilt and shame. So guilt has to do with action on a person's part. It's something you have done. Um, so to deal with it, you would say something like, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, and uh, this is how I'm going to correct it. Uh, guilt uh, is given to us by God, and it's for our protection, just like physical pain is. Uh, this is emotional pain, and just like physical pain comes from within you, it's not imposed on you. Um, it's so guilt is has internal uh, source uh, and it's there to protect you. You need to deal with guilt. Shame, on the other hand, is imposed on you. And it, it has to do with the way you think of yourself. It, it influences your self-image. And that's why we say it's imposed on you by other people. So a person suffering from shame uh, might feel that they are a sorry mistake. Not that they made a mistake, but that they are a mistake. Uh, extreme shame leads to feelings of suicide and uh, worthlessness. It is from the devil for our destruction. And so we continue uh, looking at uh, biblical stories, uh, decoding them in terms of the guilt and the shame that the participants are experiencing. So we'll just go through Adam and Eve again. Um, they clearly had guilt for eating the apple. They knew that it was wrong. Their conscience told them that. But then they have an interesting response in discovering that they are naked and one wonders why this bothered them because as far as we know there weren't any other people there uh, there were only animals there so we suspect there's more to the story than what the brief account in genesis 3 gives us in genesis 3 verse 11 god asks them who told you that you were naked like this uh, was not something that they would have uh, realized inherently, but it must have been imposed upon them by somebody. This leads uh, to the suspicion 
But after they'd eaten from the fruit, the serpent was there to impose the shame on them. And it was out of this shame that they made the fig leaves, uh, tunics out of fig leaves. And then God came and provided them with robes to deal with the shame of their nakedness. And of course, that physical nakedness is symbolic of a greater emotional nakedness that we all feel to this day. We never really expose ourselves for what we are. Uh, we try to at times uh, tell other people how we think, but we only do that when we feel very safe. So, so do you want to respond to any of that, uh, Warren? Well, I'm just, I'm just, as you're describing that, I'm wondering, would it be fair to say that inherent in sin is shame? That that's just when, when we are this side of that situation in the Garden of Eden, that, that it's the sin that we are, find ourselves in that results in our feelings of shame. Uh, this is an insightful comment because, um, you know, parents pass on shame to their children, not because they want to, but because they were shamed. And most parents parent as they were parented. Mm -hmm. And when we say we are sinners, you can, of course, describe sin in behavioral terms like uh, transgression of the law. But really, sin is the failure to love the people around you. And um, that uh, failure to love is uh, very closely connected with the shame that we experience. Hmm. Yeah, it, it just seems to be a part of the makeup of who we are without any choice on our part or any, any activity, any any decision it's just that's where we that's the way we are yeah it, it's really part of our situation on yeah. this planet and one of the ways we impose shame on people is to say you should when that is said to us by a very powerful or significant person it really impacts us and uh, often creates shame in a person Mm -hmm. So right along with uh, your comment, which is a great segue into David, that is King David, the psalmist David, he addresses shame. He says, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. That's in Psalm 51. So we do not experience guilt at conception. Mm. But uh, very early in our experience, we start to, exp um, to discover the shame in the way we think of ourselves. For instance, we know that the, the fetus is influenced by the attitudes and the way the body language, especially when the mother speaks about this child that's in her womb. So... Um, you know, a mother, by being negative and depressed um, and speaking that way, actually is imposing shame on a child in her womb. Mm. It's, it's kind of a, a serious 
um, realization when you come to be a parent. And of course, the father, um, the partner, uh, can uh, be a great influence in a positive direction uh, during the pregnancy. Now, one of the things about David uh, is he seems to have been strongly shame resilient. Uh, he was able to experience shame and write about it in his Psalms, but he also lives this very graceful life. Um, I give you one story to demonstrate that. Um, when he becomes king, the culture of the time uh, suggested that he should find all the descendants of the previous king Saul and uh, execute them so that they were no longer a threat to his reign. So he discovers Mephibosheth, um, who is um, physically challenged and one of Saul's sons. And he gives him a place at his table and he cares for this man for the rest of his life. Now that is the action of a gracious person who has overcome the shame in their lives. So the Bible, of course, doesn't uh, distinguish between guilt and shame. It just uses the word sin uh, to describe both phenomena. And uh, while we've covered this in a previous podcast, when Joshua the high priest is accused uh, by Satan in Zechariah chapter 3, it, he can, of course, deal with his guilt by offering uh, lambs, or in his case, as the high priest, he'd offer a bull. Uh, so he can deal with his guilt, but he still needs new clothes. So it is for his shame that he needs these new clothes. Because as the, the passage points out, uh, God says, uh, this is a brand that I've plucked from the fire. He is referring to uh, Joshua's self-image and how uh, God is restoring in him the sense of worth and dealing with his shame. And this is why we need um, the robe of Christ's righteousness. It, it is one of the ways that our shame is dealt with. More about that later. But it, it, so when it, I was it discovering... A, it becomes a very tangible thing to, to put on new garments. That, that whenever you see yourself, you realize, oh, this is, this is who I am now. It's different. It, there's been a change. There's been a transition. Yeah. Um, you know, when you dress up to go somewhere, you think differently about yourself. Mm -hmm. I, uh, we're in uh, isolation, and uh, I heard somebody saying the only time they dress up is to take the garbage out. <laughs> um, I presume they might be expecting to meet the garbage man. <laughs> Your clothes have a lot to do with uh, our self-image. Uh, and what's really interesting is that often the people who dress up most is to counter their, their shame. That's not always true. 
but uh, you can think about that a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So on learning about the uh, difference between guilt and shame, uh, pretty soon I started to wonder if Jesus ever experienced shame. Now I know he didn't experience guilt because uh, he challenges his listeners to find any fault in him mm -hmm. in terms of guilt. But you know, the, the whole circumstance of his birth and what the people of uh, Nazareth would have said to his mother, maybe in his hearing and said about him, whether he was listening or not. The fact that uh, he was brought up in Egypt we're not sure how long he was there. He may, it may have affected his accent. And uh, then he grows up in Nazareth, which is definitely uh, not a, a good thing. Uh, we know that from remarks made like, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So what do you think? Do you think uh, Jesus experienced shame? You know, I, as I'm thinking of this, I'm realizing that, number one, he, he did not sin, but then it is not a sin to experience shame because there's no choice involved. Sin involves a choice, but, but he just experienced what we experienced this side of the fall, and so no doubt he did experience same shame. I mean, to, to have people make these comments that, you're an illegitimate child and, and all of that would have certainly been very shaming. And uh, yeah. so, yes, I, I think uh, he probably did. So in Hebrews chapter two, verse 17 to 18, uh, it reads as follows. Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself had gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are tested. Well, that, that's pretty clear that since shame is so much a part of our existence, and he wants us to know that he experienced what we experience, then he must have had shame. So when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic, it can really be a meaningful therapeutic conversation because they have confidence in each other that they understand the problems of alcoholism. I don't think an alcoholic could have that confidence if I was talking to him or her. I have no idea what it means to have that driving desire for another drink. So in this way, Jesus is really, uh, he has bought our confidence by experience the shame that we also experience mm -hmm. uh, because we live on this planet so uh, when jesus is in the garden of gethsemane he asks his disciples uh, to watch with him so 
I'm wondering if this isn't a time when he's really wanting their empathy because empathy is the great antidote for shame. And the, we know the, the, the evil one, the devil was there in the garden of Gethsemane, pressing down this shame on him that um, what he was going through uh, was really a waste of time and wouldn't uh, be uh, beneficial to anybody, including himself. Now, I think what Jesus was hoping for when he asked his disciples to watch and pray with him is that they would reassure him and encourage him and tell of the benefit he has been in their lives already. In this way, he would have um, been strengthened by them to deal with his feelings of shame and discouragement at that time. You know, he says, my soul is troubled unto death. I mean, how would you say that in our language today? Um, I've thought about that, and I would probably say to somebody, I'm so depressed, I wish I could die. Mm. Yeah, you know, that is very insightful, the, the whole idea that he, he, he asked them to be there with him so that they could experience or understand what he was experiencing so that they could per, provide that empathy so as an antidote for the shame that was just overwhelming him and, and about to, to snuff him out. Very good. So, you know, when Jesus says uh, in John 13, uh, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, I believe this is what he's actually referring to. Um, what does it mean to really love another person? Is to be empathetic when they are oppressed under their shame. And we spoke about that a little bit. Now, one of the opportunities we have is when we get together as Christians, whether it be for worship service or a prayer meeting or a birthday party, uh, for whatever reason we get together, um, we are given ears to hear uh, each other and to um, express empathy for each other uh, rather than talking about some weather or politics or even some esoteric subject out of the Bible. It's this human interaction of caring for each other which constitutes um, the love that Jesus was encouraging us to to practice towards each other hmm. yeah very good to kind of walk alongside someone as they journey through their shame and we can be a, an encouragement to them in that way as you know recently i was in a, a, a group we it's a bible study group and one of the members were, uh, is an author and had written a book and uh the, this author was expressing some of the uh, shame that was being experienced by the negative responses 
to the book that had been written. And after the group was over, I was thinking to myself, you know, that person is really oppressed by shame at this point in time. Hmm. They're not feeling worthy. Um, so I got in contact with the person and uh, expressed my empathy with them. And it was what the person was hoping for, that hmm. somebody would hear um, what was actually being said. So, you know, I'm, I've always been puzzled about why Judas committed suicide and Peter didn't. Um, because in my mind, um, Judas betrayed Jesus, um, but he, you know, he tried to reverse that. He took the money back. He confessed that he had betrayed innocent blood. Um, in a way, He's sort of ahead of Peter in dealing with his, uh, with his guilt. Mm. And then uh, I want to remind you that in the previous podcast, we noticed that shame was one of the phenomena that correlates with suicide, according to Brene Brown, not guilt. Mm -hmm. So if she's right, the reason that Judas hanged himself was because of his shame and not because of his guilt. Hmm, very interesting. And the shame... So this would explain... Go ahead. This would, yeah, this would explain why Judas and Peter had very different um, outcomes to the Passion Week. And the shame so that, he, Peter, that, that Judas experienced was something that he was probably given as a child, that he lived with his whole life. Yes, and... Uh, I'm not sure if it's relevant, but it's interesting that Judas was the only non-Galilean disciple. All the other disciples were from Galilee. Mm. And after Judas hung himself, they chose another Galilean to replace him. So <laughs> mm. that's kind of interesting that this mm. might have had something to do with it. He might have felt like a bit of an outsider with all those other Galileans mm -hmm. as disciples. Well, I don't re really have definitive answers for all of this, but it's always intrigued me um, why there were such different outcomes. So let's talk about uh, the woman, the hemorrhaging woman who, uh, who comes to Jesus. And, and this woman uh, suffers shame. Uh, she doesn't want to be identified in public. Uh, her, her problem is not because of something is she's done, mm -hmm. but something she is. Uh, her shame is palpable. I mean, this is really a problem. Uh, in her day and age, where there's so little sanitary help for a person in this condition. So she she figures if she can just touch his garment unnoticed, she will be healed. And she is. I mean, imagine the relief and the joy in this woman's heart. And then Jesus exposes her. Uh, Warren, I don't think you would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're right. 
I, I experienced you as a very gentle, caring person. Um, you're a good example for me. When I grow up, I want to be like that. So why does Jesus expose this woman? Well, uh, a sort of logical answer is it's not magic. Uh, her healing isn't magic. There's nothing magical about touching his robe. Many people touched his robe, but weren't healed. Mm -hmm. But it was her belief, her trust in him um, that resulted in this healing. But there's another reason. Uh, the other reason is that until we speak our shame aloud, one or more people, we don't deal with it. Mm. And when uh, James says, confess your faults one to another, he's not necessarily uh, just confining uh, his therapy to guilt, but uh, shame also. And this is where it really um, is therapeutic for the person and releases the person from that shame. Once she had said uh, uh, to Jesus, yes, I touched you, I was bleeding and I've been healed. Something happened in her and she could make that witness anytime in public in the rest of her life. Mm. So, so it moved from a hidden shame in her that had been resolved to a witness that she could make to the healing power of Jesus. So he not only healed her physically, but by exposing her, he, he healed her shame. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this, this was so important to Jesus that she speak her shame out. Mm -hmm. It must be important for us too. Often our greatest testimony, our greatest witness is for the shame that Jesus has healed us from. But if we keep it a secret, we lose the ability to be that powerful influence that we have for the kingdom of God. So that kind of strikes close to home. So let's talk about something that uh, uh, is not so personal. When the prodigal son comes home, he is thinking like a slave or a servant, but his father thinks of him as a son. So now, the son, it's clear that the son's guilty of squandering his inheritance. What is not so clear is that the son is thinking shameful thoughts. Mm. But the father understands this. And so he expresses his empathy for how the son is feeling with the robe, the ring, the sandals, and the feast to end all feasts. What the father was really saying to this boy who came home feeling like a real heel is you my son, I love you, you're important to me, you're valuable to me, you'll always be my son, 
I'll always love you and respect you. He, this was the, the antidote for his shame-based servant-slave mentality. And all these actions of the father are to help him think like the son that he really is in his father's eyes. Yeah, that's very practical, very powerful. So we'll come back to this before we end the podcast. But God thinks of us very differently to the way we think of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at the well of Jacob. She's drawing water at noon. From that, we know that she's experiencing rejection and threats by the village woman. She's experiencing the shame of being an outcast by the very people that she wants to be part of as a woman. This is a Jewish man. He's dressed that way. And it reminds her of her inferior state, one, as a woman, two, as a Samaritan woman. But the way Jesus listens to her and talks to her gives her value. She intuitively understands this man as empathy for her situation. And this is the antidote for her shame. So when she goes back to the village and she says, come and hear a man who told me all that I ever did, she is trying to say, this man understands my problems of how poorly I think of myself. And he has given me a new way of seeing myself. And that was her witness um, mm -hmm. to the village that intrigued her fellow villagers in spite of their low opinion of her. I mean, this was a dramatic change in this woman's life. I, I think that they could sense a change in her, in spite of what she was saying, just to look at her, she, was, she physically stood taller and more erect and looked them in the eye. She was profoundly altered. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, Jordan Peterson in his Rules for Life that's one of the uh, rules he makes. He says, um, stand up straight and put your shoulders back. Mm. It tells the world that you're engaged and you're positive. And let's talk about another woman, uh, the woman taken in adultery uh, in John chapter 8. I don't know if you've ever noticed that most Bibles have a have a note with regard to John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, that it does not appear in the older manuscripts. So mm -hmm. we think this story was uh, an oral tradition, and it, eventually it got incorporated in the scripture. So when I was thinking of this, uh, I was thinking of Monica Lewinsky and her affair with Bill Clinton. I was watching an interview uh, with her and she was telling that she always, as an adolescent and a teenager, had a problem with um, being obese, overweight. 
And so she thought of herself very poorly. So when any man paid her attention, she was a sitting duck. So she wasn't trying to um, excuse herself. Uh, she was quite candid about saying that she made a mistake and she wouldn't do it again. But she was explaining why she was so vulnerable. And this made me think of that uh, woman taken in adultery in the Bible. Can you imagine the, the shame of her nakedness, the terror of being stoned, the realization of her shame, that this was exposed to all, that no one valued her, everyone around her was set on destroying her. And the last thing she experienced, she expected in this situation was stoning. Never did she imagine that Jesus would give her worth with words and his body language. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus says to her, go and sin no more, at a very superficial level, we can say, well, it's encouraging her not to commit adultery again. But if you, once you understand about shame and guilt, you realize that when Jesus says, stop sinning, he's really saying, stop listening to the negative voices you hear in your head. Deal with the source of your shame. Stand up straight, put your shoulders back, walk tall. You are my sister. Mm -hmm. You don't have to live like this. You know, I, I get this visual of she's thrown to the ground in front of him. And, and he stoops down and starts writing in the sand. And just his body language mirrors hers. He gets down low to be close to her. That would have been uh, an act of, of empathy in itself. Right on. And uh, the communication specialists tell us that verbally, we only communicate 7% of our communication. The other 93 is our body language. Mm -hmm. So in, in that case, when Jesus, as you point out, stoops down and joins her mm -hmm. on the floor, um, he's communicating something very intimate and meaningful to her. Yeah. So just a reminder that the, the primary antidote for shame is empathy. Um, recognizing the value of the person and bringing this value to the attention of the person who's experiencing the shame. So, I want to now show how that, that is the message of the cross, uh, the message of the New Testament, and the message of, the, of Jesus himself. So first of all, the cross is the guarantee that our guilt is taken away. The guilt has been dealt with. I mean, this is so clear in the New Testament. Jesus would say to people who hadn't even asked for it, my son, your sins are forgiven. Mm -hmm. Or the woman taken in adultery, where your accusers, neither I accuse you. What remains to be dealt with is the way we think about ourselves. 
our shame. And the robe of Christ's righteousness is to deal with this shame. This robe gives us worth, value, a new self-image, and the possibility of positive self-talk. You know, we're always unworthy of grace, but we have worth because we are made in God's image and because Jesus died for us. Mm -hmm. And the way that that is communicated to us is by giving us this robe of righteousness. And when we put that robe on, people looking at us recognize that we are Christians. That means that the way we talk about ourselves and the way God has given us value helps other people to understand that you can deal with your shame. Now, I heard somebody preaching um, just over Easter. And this speaker was saying that God's holiness prevents him from looking upon us because of our sin. Mm. And that is so, such a traditional way of looking at why we need the robe of Christ's righteousness. Mm -hmm. when rather it's given to us because of our shame, because we, we condemn ourselves, we judge ourselves, we speak badly of ourselves. And that speaking badly of ourselves is only a faint reflection of how badly we think of ourselves. And God is in the saving business, the healing business. And that robe is the antidote because of our shame. So he gives it to the robe to us for our benefit, not for his. Right on. When Adam and Eve sin, God comes looking for them. He's not afraid to look at them. He's not afraid to be with them. He's not a threat to them. They are the ones who are really suffering under their guilt and shame. And he brings them a robe to help them deal with their shame. So listen to the words of Jesus in John 15, 15. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I've told you everything the Father told me. Mm. Now the one thing that we can be sure of that the Father told him is this. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So, Warren, that's the one thing I am sure of that God has said to me. Mm -hmm. Ian, you are my beloved son, and I'm well pleased in you. I am certain that God has said to you, Warren K. Warren, you are my beloved son. I'm well pleased in you. Mm -hmm. So, faith is choosing to believe what God says about us as opposed to what we think about ourselves. Just like the prodigal son had to choose to believe what his father said about him rather than what he believed about himself. Yes. And in the last chapters of Revelation, it talks about the people who are outside the city. And it says, outside are the cowards. You ever puzzled about that? No, I haven't. Why would cowards? Hmm. Why would 
cowards be on, outside the city, ranked with liars and murderers and dogs. Cowards, uh, John is refer, referring to people who never believed, couldn't believe the way God felt about them and the way God saw them. Mm -hmm. So faith is triumphing over this uh, feeling of um, negative self-worth and believing what God actually thinks about you. Mm -hmm. So here comes the great uh, scriptural antidote to shame. It appears in Romans 8 and also in Galatians. I want to read, well, I'm going to ask you to read Romans 8, 14 sure. to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, Instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as, a, as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So we certainly share his suffering. And this whole business of shame is a huge evidence hmm. that we have shared in Jesus' suffering. But look at what it's saying, Warren. We've been adopted as God's own children. Mm -hmm. We are adopted in the royal family of the universe. Mm -hmm. This is incredible. You know, the members of the royal family of the universe are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're adopted into that family. Mm -hmm. I mean, what value that gives us. So faith is learning to think like the royal children we are, according to God's own word. You read well. Read Galatians 4, verse 5 to 7, please. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own children. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. So this is why Revelation says that to those who overcome, overcome their fear and their negative self-image will together on the throne with God. Mm -hmm. We are heirs to the throne of God. God has made you his heir. Mm -hmm. And here it is, an heir inherits when the parent dies, but our parent died at Calvary. Mm -hmm. We are already heirs. It has come true. By faith, we are heirs of God. And when the second coming is over, we will be heirs by fact. So I salute you, fellow heirs of the kingdom. Think as becoming who you are in God's eyes.
God counts you worthy to be his royal child. This means you are of royal blood, a princess or a prince of the realm, the universe. Be who you are in God's mind. God bless you as you think these thoughts. God bless you to be able to realize them in your own mind so that when you are overcome by your negativity or the evil one or other people, you can say to yourself, I am a prince. I am a princess of God. I will not let this negativity get me down. All of the universe waits for me to be revealed as God's child. Thank you for joining us on this journey to understand the God that Jesus knew. And if you'd like to share this with friends, we'd appreciate that. In fact, we have created a new website called rediscoveringgod.ca. You can refer your friends to that site and they can see all the podcasts that we have produced so far and the ones uh, in the future will be posted there. Uh, you can make comments. You can join us in a dialogue and a conversation so that we can discover what difference this is making for you or any questions that you have that we can endeavor to answer or perhaps address in a future podcast. So that's rediscoveringgod.ca. In addition to the website, we've also created a WhatsApp site called Rediscovering God. So if you're on WhatsApp or would like to join us, uh, just search for us there or send me an email at wkay. S is in Sam, I-X, at gmail.com. And I'll be glad to add you to our group and we can continue the dialogue there.